Okay. Is this on? Okay, today is um, January the 5th, 2012. So, uh, I don't think I have any announcements other than we're going to take everything down afterwards. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer, option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can come and learn your word. We recognize how absolutely imperative it is for us to keep the doctrines that we are learning current in our stream of consciousness so that we can always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us, that we'll be able to stand firm for the truth. We thank you that you have continued to be faithful in providing everything necessary for us to do that. All we need to add is our positive volition and the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we're on our way. So we pray that you will help us to focus while we pray it. In Christ's name, amen. I received uh, something on, um, I guess you would call it a newsletter. I don't know what you'd call it. It's called... Um, let me think. I'm um, Brandon House. Anybody know who Brandon House is? And uh, what, what's the name of the newsletter? You know, um, World Worldview Weekend. This is something I get about once every week or so. And he has a lot of subjects on there. Some of them are videos, and some of them are articles. And I always go over it because I find things that are interesting. It's on the cutting edge. Things that are actually happening within the last week or so. And sometimes I pass a few along to you. This is one that I, <coughs> I copied today. It's by Dr. David Noble. Anybody, anybody ever recognize him? Uh, he is a, a theologian. I've seen him several times at the, the Schaefer Conference at West Houston Bible Church in Houston. The last one I went to, it, 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 was, it was very informative, but it was nearly like he was a comedian. I mean, we were laughing so hard. He's a wonderful teacher. He's uh, published I don't, a number of books. One, uh, most of the time they have to do with a worldview. What is your worldview and things of that sort. This one has to do with homosexuals. And it's the, the title of this. I only got two paragraphs and then a short poem. Uh, the title is Sodomites International by David A. Noble. <clears throat> he says, listen to one homosexual hero of the left. This is a quote that this person gives. Your God of Leviticus and of the whole Bible is clearly a sinful homophobic sinner. He should repent of his sinful homophobia. He should atone for that sin, and he should seek forgiveness for the pain and suffering which his sinful homophobia has needlessly inflicted upon gay people for the past 4,000 years. End of quote. Now, this is... These words were spoken by Franklin E. Kameny, that's K-A-M-E-N-Y, who on June 29, 2009, was given the Theodore Roosevelt Award by our president in the White House, his office's highest honor. The reference for 
this is found in Michael L. Brown's, quote, A Queer Thing Happened to America, page 601. If our president and his hirelings get their way, children around the world will be reading the poem. Here's, I'm about to read some of the poem. It's called, <coughs> Here at School the Slant is Gay. That's the name of the poem. It is found in uh, A Queer Thing Happened to America by Michael L. Brown, page 86. Here is an excerpt. Now, no moaning or groaning. Just try to take this in without getting nauseated. Little Johnny went to school. There he learned a brand new rule. No longer could the boys be boys or have their special trucks and toys. Only six, so young and tender, it's time for him to unlearn gender and break the binding two-sex mold, that hurtful thinking that's so old. Parents at home can have their say, but here at school, the slant is gay. In other words, to make this clear, there's nothing wrong with being queer. Having two moms is mighty fine. To disagree is out of line. We'll disconnect the family and smash religious bigotry and keep the church out of the state by saying faith is really hate. So little ones, it's time to learn about famous queers, such one, each one in turn. Lesbian greets, uh, excuse me, lesbian greats long neglected will well-known gays just now detected. Some perhaps were man-boy lovers. We'll keep that stuff under the covers. And through the years as Johnny grows, he will learn that anything goes. With Bill who's trans and Joe who's bi and Sue who thinks that she's a guy. A queer new system rules the day since here at school the slant is gay. Now that is a guy uh, that has heralded what um, uh, that was this person that was given the Theodore Roosevelt Award by our president. Uh, this is what uh, unvarnished uh, agenda that gays have for our school. So I thought that was interesting. Um, these are the people that occupy places of high office. They have power. It's only be, going to be the grace of God and believers standing up for what is right, what is righteous, and not caving in to political correctness that will stem the tide of this type of garbage just really permeating our schools. And only time will tell what will happen. Okay, let's get to our knitting now here. We are in getting the gospel right. And I'm just going to plunge right in on uh, where we left off last time, which is Titus chapter 1, verse 10 through 16. I'm impressed more and more with what we're studying because I, I just don't see people addressing these issues and... They're, it's needed. This teaching is desperately needed, and it just seems like not many people are getting it. The part of getting the gospel right that we're 
undertaking now is faith alone. There's a lot of attacks on faith alone, so this is going to be a fairly long portion of our getting the gospel right. If you'll turn to Titus chapter 1, verse 10 through 16. We're just going to mainly read this and point out a thing or two and then press on. I'll put it up here on the board if you want to see it up here. Titus 1.10 For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, which is talking about the Jews, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Anyone who teaches false doctrine and is remunerated for it, paid for it, that's sordid gain or filthy lucre. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is talking about people on the Isle of Crete. We went over that last time in some detail. This testimony is true. For this cause, reprove them severely. Uh, You might underline the them. We're going to see that the them is not referring to false teachers. I mean, excuse me, unbelievers, but believers. It says, Reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. I submit to you that it's only believers who are going to be reproved and that they are not going to pay pay attention to commandments of men and who can turn away from the truth so that they can be sound in faith. Ever seen an unbeliever that the Bible instructs to be sound in faith? That's pretty ludicrous, isn't it? This is talking about believers. Verse 15, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God. Notice that is a verb. It's the perfect active indicative. It means they knew Him in the past and they continue to know Him in the future. Indicative mood. This is a reality. It's not a subjunctive mood, which means it's only a potential. It is reality. But their deeds, by their deeds, they deny Him being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. All of these adjectives tend to make most people think this is talking about unbelievers because they do not understand what the real issue is after salvation. You either grow or you die is essentially what's going to happen. And they don't understand that. If you're not growing, then you are going to be consumed by the mytiotes, which is the word for the vacuum that forms in your soul when it's not feeding on doctrine and you will wind up being detestable, disobedient, worthless for any good uh, deed. You'll be defiled, unbelieving. What did we see up here? Rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers. This is all referring to believers who are not growing. They're, They're going to heaven probably after they die of sin unto death And they are taken out prematurely because they will not humble themselves or be obedient to God. Okay? Here we start Lesson 25 on today's date. Most commentaries argue that these passages are about people who say they are believers, but 
their behavior doesn't, doesn't say it. In other words, uh, you can't tell by their behavior. Many people think the following passage is talking about unbelievers because of their behavior. So we're going to see another section of Scripture that is going to be describing mainly unbelievers, but most people would categorize them as unbelievers because they just don't understand that when a believer is not growing, he is retrogressing, and he can be the biggest stinker of the bunch. Turn to Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 9, because we're going to have some things to fill in there. Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 9. This is a parable. This is Christ speaking in parables. Actually, parables was actually uh, Christ speaking in code. Those who had spiritual life and knew some doctrine could make the connection. They understood the code. But to those who were unbelievers, it was just, they couldn't make the connection. It was just nonsense. Matthew chapter 13, verse 3. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seeds. Now, the seeds here, as we're going to see, is referring to the gospel. And he sowed some seeds. They fell beside the road. And the birds here, referring to Satan or his demons, metaphorically speaking, came and ate them up. This is referring to unbelievers. They've never, they did not accept the gospel. They believed the lies, which would here be the birds, who came along and ate them up, ate up the seeds. They just would not accept the gospel at all. So that is an unbeliever there. Verse 5. And others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. This is referring to baby believers. No depth of soil means they didn't have much doctrine, just a little bit of doctrine. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. That's what happens to believers who have just a little bit of soil, not much doctrine. It's the first time that adversity comes along. When someone comes around and starts doubting their worldview of Christ and grace, then they wither and they succumb to the lies. Now verse 7. And others fell among the thorns. This is talking about the other seeds. This is mean doctrine that's going in now. Uh, fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked out. Something's missing there. Oh, choked them, uh, choked them out. Okay, thank you. Uh, the thorns would be mental attitude, sins, distractions. This is a person that has believed the gospel. They are a believer. But the thorns and thistles, which would be their mental attitudes, sins, and distractions, came up and choked them out. In other words, it distracted the believers, and they didn't grow into a, any kind of plant or bush or anything that would have any fruit because the thorns and thistles choked them out. That's what distractions do to believers who are not strong in doctrine. They get distracted, and the next thing you know, they're going to be choked out. There's not going to be any fruit bearing because the the plant never gets uh, to maturity. 
Verse 8. And others fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. This would be referring to mature believers. Believers who learned the plan of God, learned doctrine, and applied it. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. If you do not have positive volition, then you don't have that kind of ears. If, you, if you're not interested in this, you hear what I'm saying, but it means nothing to you. This is essentially Christ saying, this is important. You better meditate upon this. You better understand what's at stake. And it would go along with positive volition. Now, if you drop down to Matthew chapter 13, see, we went through Matthew 13, 3 through 9. If you drop down to uh, Matthew 13, starting with verse 18, we have Christ himself that is going to expand on this and explain what he's talking about there. There's some verses in between, but it's at verse 18 where he is going to explain what he meant. Verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. Verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, see that would be the seeds that go out, the gospel, and then uh, what they, the, the, the gospel message for them at that time had to do with the kingdom. The king was on earth. It was offered to these believers. It was offered to, to the Jews. We know that they rejected it had they, in, in mass, accepted it, then the kingdom could have started. There could have been the kingdom right then. Of course, we know that that wouldn't happen because there's so many prophecies of, of them rejecting it, uh, 70 A.D., then we have the, the, the rapture, we have the tribulation, we have the church age. All of that would have, I don't know what would have happened. It wouldn't come to pass like that if they had accepted it. But they didn't. God knew they wouldn't, so we have all the rest of eschatology. However, it was a bona fide offer, and when anyone hears the word, that would be the gospel of the kingdom, the king is here, Messiah, and does not understand it, that would be negative volition, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. This is verse 4. So he's telling you. That's what, was, that's what he was talking about in the parable. Now, anyone can understand the gospel. Why is that? First of all, the gospel is exceedingly simple, is it not? Even a, a small child can understand the gospel. So it's not that it's complicated that someone cannot understand it. Furthermore, we have what we have designated as common grace. The gospel goes out to spiritually dead people. They do not have the apparatus to understand spiritual phenomena because they don't have a human spirit. So God the Holy Spirit acts as a human spirit with, the hat, with regards to the gospel so that they can understand it. So there's no reason why they can't understand it. It's simple. The Holy Spirit intercedes and explains or makes it perspicuous and clear about the gospel, the spiritual uh, information. And so the reason they don't understand it is because they are negative to it. One reason is because the evil one snatches away what has been sown in their heart. They've heard the gospel. They may be considering it, but their mind is pervaded with 
human viewpoint, evil, demonic thoughts, doubt, fear, all the rest of it. And it says that he comes, the evil one comes and snatches away what was in their heart. This is the one whose seed was sown beside the road. That is an unbeliever. That is the only part of the parable that references an unbeliever. Then verse 20. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Okay, what's that? He, he, he understands the gospel. He is joyful because evidently someone explained grace to him and that salvation is a gift. He's all in, excited about that. The next word in verse 21 is yet. That would be the same as but. Contrast here. He has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when afflicted, affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. This would be someone that is all emotional at the point of salvation. And they're like a, a skyrocket that, that burns out quickly. And our time on earth as believers whether we're going to be experientially sanctified. It's not a sprint, is it? It is a long-distance race we have to endure. Well, this guy burns out very quickly. It's only temporary because what does it say? He has no firm root in himself. He has no doctrine to, to support him. Now, this can be for many reasons. It could be that... Um, the main reason would be that he's got negative volition. Another reason is because not many churches are teaching any doctrine in depth these days. It could be that he has friends that never extend themselves to him to encourage him and exhort him to get him uh, to endure sound doctrine. There's many reasons why, but the fact is that he has no root, no firm root, and because he has just little doctrine, no firm root, there's always going to be affliction or persecution that arises, and he falls away. Because to him, the circumstances are more real, the adversity is more real than God and His Word. And so they start depending on human devices and human merit and all this. Verse 22. By the way, that describes the <clears throat> verses 5 and 6. Verse 22. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke, out, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So this again is a believer, but he's worried. He's got the worries of the world. The worries of the world become a distraction. And the deceitfulness of riches. Not many people who are wealthy are concerned about the Word. And you know why? Because they think they need God. They've got everything they need. They are financially at ease. They're comfortable. More than comfortable, maybe. And so they don't need to spend their time to go and... Learn the Word because after all, they got everything they need. But that's a believer who, again, 
is unfruitful. And then verse 23, we have the final one, which is the mature believer. Verse 23, And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil... You know what the good soil is there? Plus B, positive volition. That's the good soil. Was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it. Anybody can understand it because of the what? Grace system of perception. Doesn't matter what your IQ, what your education is, anything else. It just depends on how rich your soil is, how much positive volition you have. He understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. See, everybody does not bring forth the same amount of fruit. But the thing is, an immature plant does not bear fruit, does it? You have to get to that maturity. You have to be able to connect the dots, figure out what's going on, be grace-oriented, be motivated by the consistent intake of doctrine, your thinking divine viewpoint, you're on your way, and there's going to be a point in time where you're going to start producing fruit. Have you ever noticed when you have a new fruit tree, usually the first fruit you have is little bitty, small? It's just like a chicken when they first start laying an egg. How big is that first egg? You know, it's about the size of a, a ping pong ball or smaller. It develops over time. Now, some believe in the perseverance of the saints. Now, I'm going to change, I'm going to change um, from what we were talking about. What, what I was trying to point out in these scriptures that I just showed you is that, again, people read this parable and they think that the only one that is saved is the last one that, that bore fruit, that got to maturity. Because they just, it's too painful for them to think that uh, you could fall away. You could be distracted and be disqualified for rewards. But what they don't understand is when the seed is sown, the gospel is given. If it's accurate and it is received, boom. That is something permanent that occurs. It's completely separate as to what takes place after salvation. And what is Christ talking about here? He's talking about what takes place after salvation. In three cases, the only one that he doesn't is the first one because that's an unbeliever and they have no spiritual life, so he's not referring to anything afterwards. So I got that. Any questions? Okay, now I'm going to... I'm setting something up here now because we're talking about faith alone. Now there are people who would allege that you can tell whether a person is truly saved by their behavior. If you look at someone's life and you don't see the fruit of the Spirit, then that's a good indication that either, first of all, they're not truly saved. They may think they're saved, but they didn't have enough faith. They didn't have the right kind of faith. They had a faulty faith, so they're not really saved. Or some people will come right out and say, if you don't have this fruit, if you're not producing good works, then you can lose your salvation. Both of them have to do with works. Now, some believe in the perseverance of the saints. Now, remember that phrase, because that's important. So many people that you're going to come in contact with, even if they don't know how to articulate this theology, they subscribe to it. 
Anyone who thinks that you can lose your salvation, anyone who is of a Reformed theology background, we call them Calvinists, subscribe to this. And I'm going to take it apart through the Scriptures. So some believe in the perseverance of the saints, a phrase used by those who adhere to Reformed theology. Anytime you hear of something being Reformed, it is a reference to those who are also known as Calvinists. It's referring to the Reformation. Because this is when Calvin came on the scene and he came up with this, what is universally now called Reformed theology. Uh, some call it Calvinism. And it essentially uh, is a system of salvation that is based on works, only you come in through the back door, not the front. They will not say that you can lose your salvation. But if your behavior is not such whereby people can see your fruit, then they say that here's, it's not that you lost your salvation, you never had it to begin with. These two ideas, this ideology is prevalent throughout the whole earth right now. And most of the people, the great majority of the people that you will come in contact with for the rest of your life are going to subscribe to this. So you have to be ready to address it. They believe in a person, if a person is look, truly saved, and you know that, that that phrase, those two words there, truly saved, you will never find it in the Bible. You either saved or you're not. But you're, the Bible never says truly saved. That adverb is added by those who subscribe to this. Now remember, we're just coming off of that phrase that we went to last Tuesday night, that cliche that says, the faith that saves is alone, but the faith that... You know, Faith, faith is... Let me go back to it. Sorry. Just, just a minute. It can be tricky. I want to get it right. Come on, computer. All right, let's get up here where it is. We covered a lot of ground. It's not even here. Did somebody write it down? Okay, give it to me. There you got it. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And I'm here to tell you, that's rubbish. That's nonsense. Where am I? Here I am. No, I'm not. Okay. Now, here I am. Okay. Yeah. We are saved by faith alone. If they would just end it there. But the faith that saves is never alone. Remember we went into the laws of contradiction? That's not logical. It contradicts itself. It's the same as saying faith alone equals not faith alone. But that developed in the Reformation era and has gone on ever since then so that people can say, yes, we subscribe to faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. That's saying that you have to have works as well. It's contradictory and it is false. And that's what, that's what both those who are in Reformed theology will say that. They will say we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone because if you're truly saved, you're going to have the works. 
and they must accompany the faith or else you're not truly saved. You didn't have the right kind of faith. And I am telling you, as far as I can tell, that's a work system to be saved. You're coming in the back door, but you're still saying that works are necessary. Now, there are others who will say that you must persevere. They believe in the perseverance of the saints, but they'll say if you don't persevere, it's not a sign that you weren't saved with to be saved to begin with, but you just outright lose your salvation. And that's a more overt way of saying, hey, you've got to keep working. You have to maintain your salvation with works. The great masses of humanity subscribe to what I just gave you. Remember what I told you? Eternal life is eternal. It means it doesn't need maintenance with works. So they believe if a person is truly saved, he will persevere in good works. And if he doesn't persevere, he isn't truly saved. The same ideology is embraced by the church of Christ and others who believe eternal salvation can be lost if one fails to persevere. Not only, you, they'll say, oh yes, you're saved by grace. No merit involved. And you, I don't know if they would say that you have imputed eternal life and God's righteousness. I don't know if they go that far to say that. But if they did, they would have to say what well, can be revoked. If you don't have enough works, if you're not producing, you're out. You've lost your salvation, you're going to hell. Boy, am I glad that we don't believe that way. The difference between the two is that the Calvinist thinks if a, if a believer fails to persevere, he never was really saved to begin with, whereas the Church of Christ says a believer who does not persevere can lose his salvation, but you still wind up at the same place, don't you? Either way, you're going to wind up in hell if you don't have the perseverance to continue to produce good works. If being born again guarantees that will produce good works, then all the commands and exhortations to produce them would be unnecessary, right? If, if it's automatic that we, if, if when we believe in Jesus Christ and we have the right kind of faith and we're truly saved, then the tenets of Reformed theology, the P in TULIP that will resonate with some of you, is perseverance of the saints, and it means that you will persevere to the end. To the end of what? To the end of your life. You will do good works. That's part of their ideology. And the only one that's worse than that is the L in TULIP, and that's limited atonement. But that is their Achilles heel. First of all, can anyone here or anyone anywhere be able to say dogmatically that they're 100% certain that they're going to persevere in good works for the rest of their life. Can anybody say that? They can say it, but how believable is it? So, all these commands and exhortations to produce the good works wouldn't be necessary if they are automatically going to occur anyway, right? Are we in agreement with that? Do I need to read it again? Okay. There would be no warnings of divine discipline for not producing works, like James, and no warnings of divine discipline for indulging in sin. Do we find such warnings in the Bible? You better believe it. A lot. So let's look at it. 
Let's start with Titus chapter 3, verse 14. Now, you might want to turn to each one of these in the Bible and make a little notations as we go. <clears throat> Titus 3, 14. And let our people, underline our people. I don't believe he would be calling unbelievers our people, would he? He's talking about believers here. And let our people also learn to engage in good deeds to meet the pressing needs that they may, that they may not be unfruitful. Now, according to this, Christians must learn to engage in good deeds. In other words, if good deeds are automatic, if you're truly a believer, then why would people have to learn to engage in good deeds? Do all believers learn to engage in good deeds? Well, most believers don't learn anything. They know John 3.16, and that's about the limit of what they know, period. Otherwise, they will be unfruitful. If they don't learn it, they can be unfruitful. Now, does this not demonstrate that it's possible for a believer to be unfruitful? Unfruitful means not producing works. Unfruitful would be not persevering, would it not? Already in the first verse, whew, there's a lot there, right? He's talking to believers. They have to learn to do good works, good deeds. And to meet the present needs so that they might not be unfruitful. If they don't know, learn how to produce good deeds or good works, then they're going to be unfruitful. When he's saying learn to produce good works, do you have to learn to help an old lady across the street? No, that comes natural. But you know what you do have to learn? You have to learn how to produce divine good. You ask an unbeliever, What's the difference between human good and divine good? And he's going to look like it, at you like you've got three eyeballs. He doesn't know what you're talking about. It has to be learned, doesn't it? Doctrine built on doctrine. Let's go to 2 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Excuse me, 2 Peter 1, 8 through 9. Second Peter 1, 8 through 9. Again, we have Peter talking to believers. Second Peter 1 Peter 1.8 <clears throat> For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what do we learn from that already? If you're not increasing... If the qualities that he had mentioned are not increasing, then you will be useless and unfruitful. Right? Can't we deduce that from this? The negative is true if the positive is true. In other words, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, then you can be assured that you're not going to be unfruitful. But if they're not yours and they're not increasing 
then you will be rendered useless and unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not true? This is saying that you can be useless and unfruitful as a believer. Then he goes on to say, For he who lacks these qualities, and by the way, the word lacks there is a verb. It's the present active indicative. It means you continue to lack these things. You are not producing them. You're not producing the, uh, the action. And indicative mood is reality. For he who lacks these, th- these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. So evidently he's a believer because he's had purification from his former sins. When did that take place? Well, it either took place when he believed in Christ or when he rebounded, when he acknowledged his sins. So Christians can be useless, unfruitful, blind, and short-sighted. Now, I don't think any of those are descriptive of someone who is persevering. Do you? Here's the next one. Well, we go to Romans 6, and we just have a field day here. Romans chapter 6. We'll start with verse 1 and 2. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? He's summing up what he had given in Romans chapter 5. Now, do you know what Romans chapter 5 is all about? It's comparing Satan and his act of disobedience, I mean, excuse me, Adam and his act of disobedience with Christ and his act of obedience. It's describing what happened when Adam sinned as opposed to what happened when Christ was obedient, sinless, Exact opposite. goes back and forth. So he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in, in sin that grace might increase? Now this continue here is a verb, and it's the present active subjunctive. That means are we to continue to sin, but it's only a potential. It depends upon you and your volition, how much doctrine you have. Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase, that already presupposes that a person can continue, a believer can continue in sin. And then he says, may it never be. Now this is a verb. It's A-M-O. That's, I think this is the first time I ever gave that code. You know, the, I'm giving you code here for the, uh, this is the aorist middle optative. We're giving you the tense voice and mood here. Aorist tense means in a point of time. Middle voice means you are going to be benefited. You're going to be uh, affected by what you do. And subjunctive mood means it's, I'm excuse me, the optative mood, that's important. The optative mood means he hopes that it will be that way, but he has no guarantee. In other words, when he says, may it never be so, in the optative mood, you know what you could also say? It might be so. Are y'all getting that? Because that's what the optative mood is. It's just a desire. It's a hope that it will never be so. What won't be so? That you will uh, continue to sin so that grace may increase. He says, I hope this is... He says, may it never be so. I hope it will never be so. But it might be so. Can a person continue in sin... 
and at the same time be persevering in good works? Can't happen, can it? you got two sides of two different things there. If it can never be that you are not increasing in sin, that is his desire, but the potential is there. Then he says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Can a person who has died to sin still live in it? I see wheels turning. Have you died to sin? How many here think you died to sin? Okay, how do you know? Where would you go in the Bible to find it? Where is it? I know, where is it? Would you believe it's in Romans 6, right here where we are? It's in the same chapter that we're in. Don't, go, don't start reading ahead now. I want you to stick with me. I'm just trying to... <laughs> we, when Christ... You even see that. The, the condemnation and then the opposite, which is the grace that comes is in Romans 5, and then he expands it in chapter 6. In Romans, this is where we are. He's saying, can we who died to Christ... We, when Christ died, we died. Just like when Adam sinned, we sinned. There's... It has to be equal balance. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, When Christ died, we all die. And when Christ was crucified, we too were crucified. We weren't there when Adam was there. We weren't there when Christ died. It's called retroactive. I don't want to get into all that right now. I'm just, I probably shouldn't have got into it, but I'm just trying to. Romans 6 is where all that is. Now, Romans chapter 6, verse 4. So we too might, I'm just taking the, the, the pertinent part of the verse here. So we too might walk in newness of life. He's talking about believers here. And when he says might walk, this is the aorist active subjunctive. That means it's a potential, but it's not a reality. If the perseverance of the saints was a true doctrine, this would not be a subjunctive. It would be an indicative mood. It would be the mood of reality. Do you understand that? He wouldn't be saying, so we too might walk in newness of life. He would be saying, we for damn sure are going to continue to walk in newness of life. If the perseverance of the faith, uh, perseverance of the saints is a true doctrine, do you understand? This would not be a subjunctive. It wouldn't be a potential. It would be a reality. You see that it's not. Even in the English you can see that so that we too might walk in newness of life. It's, this is only a potential. And if it's only a potential, what does it mean? It means there are believers who are not going to walk in the newness of life. They're going to live like they always live. They're going to have the same bad habits. They're not going to have any spiritual dimension to their lives. Oh, they're saved. But they are not persevering. And what I'm telling you is the persevering has nothing to do with eternal salvation. It has everything to do with post-salvation living. And that's what this is talking about. Romans 6.6 6, That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, no longer be is an infinitive. And it's a present active. 
Now, an infinitive doesn't have a mood, so you can't say that it's indicative or subjunctive or anything like that. But we do know one thing. What? It's present tense. So he's, he, this could be translated this way, probably should be, that we should no longer keep on being slaves to sin. He is exhorting them. We should walk in newness of life. We should, not, we should no longer be slaves to sin, continue to be slaves to sin. And what is this? This is a possibility. It is a possibility for a believer to continue to be a slave to sin. And I know that you know believers who fit that description. Does that mean they're not believers? Does it mean that they had a false faith? Does it, does it mean they're in danger of losing their salvation? Of course not. Romans 6.12. Are y'all turning these and putting these little notes? You're not going to remember them. <laughs> Verse 12. Romans 6.12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Who is he talking to? Of course, he's talking, still talking to believers. Now, this is a command. It's a present active imperative. When it says, do not let sin reign, this reign here is a present tense. You have to continue to obey this. Active voice, you're the one that's going to be um, not letting sin reign. And it's the imperative mood. It is a command. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. If you're persevering, why, do, why would one need this command if you automatically are going to persevere in good works anyway? Wouldn't it be superfluous? Why do we need these commands if we automatically, every believer, is going to persevere in doing good until the end of his life? So that sin will not reign in your mortal body, that you should obey. Now, here's an infinitive. Again, that's a present active. It should be so that you should keep on obeying its lusts, the sin nature's lust. Sin can keep on reigning in a believer's life, can't it? And if sin is reigning in a believer's life, then he is not persevering, is he? Right? He can't be persevering if he allows sin to keep on. If he keeps on obeying the lust of his flesh, he is not persevering. And this is, taught to, is referencing who? Believers, right? How about 13? The next verse. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Do not go on presenting. Presenting is a bird, uh, excuse me, a verb. It's a present active imperative again. This is a command. Do, this is Paul telling them, don't keep doing this. Presenting your body's members as instruments of unrighteousness. Believers, right? Another command. Okay, we're going to end on this one. We don't have much more time, but this is a good one. I, a little bit long, but we'll see what happens. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 13. This puts a lot of it in perspective here. You understand what I'm doing here. I'm taking this idea that all believers must persevere to the end or else they'll lose their salvation or else they really weren't saved to begin with. That's what I'm undermining. That's what I'm taking these scriptures to show that that is malarkey. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. So then, what? Brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if, this is a first class conditional clause, means an assumption is based on reality. For if you are living in according, living according to the flesh, you must die. Now write this in there where it says you must die. If you can fit it in there, write sud. S-U-D. This is referring to the sin unto death. If a believer, he has the option to do this, keeps on living according to the flesh, to his dictates of his old sin nature, what's going to happen? He's going to die. This is physical death, premature death. Isn't that what James was warning against? A warning of giving the warning? Now he changed it. But if, another first class condition, an assumption based on reality, if you're living, is what it means here, by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. And this is a verb, it's a future middle indicative. In other words, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, He is influencing your life then you will be putting to death the deeds of the body and you will live. Middle voice means you are affected, benefited by the action of the verb, which would be putting to death the sins of the body, the deeds of the body. You will live in indicative mood. It's a reality. It's a surety that that will take place. And it's talking about the super grace life of mature believers. This, is not, this doesn't have anything to do, well, it does to a small degree, but it's talking about physical death. You're putting to get, that's what it's talking about in verse 13. Now it's talking about physical life. You'll be living the super grace life of the mature believer if you're putting to death the deeds of the body. Verse 14, for all, this is referring to all of the mature believers, Make sure you get these in here. For all the mature believers who are being led. This is interesting here. The word led here is a verb. is a present passive indicative. Being led means being led by what? Right now, you are fitting the bill right here. You are being led. Present tense, you're continuing to learn. Passive voice, it's only because of God's grace that you are receiving this instruction and understanding this instruction, all you did was show up and God takes care of the rest. So it's a passive voice. You who are being led, indicative movements, reality, you're learning Bible doctrine by the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. It doesn't mean that there's only, that it's talking about unbelievers versus believers who are sons. The Greek word here for sons is huios, H-U-I-O-S, and it's talking about adult sons. 
mature believers. You got that? Let's put it together. So then, believers, so then, brethren, excuse me, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if, which is first class, you are living according to the flesh, what does that tell you? A believer can live according to the flesh, right? He says, if you do that, then you're going to die. You must die. Well, everybody dies, but nobody, not, not all people die to sin and to death. That's what's in view here. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You're going to live the abundant life. You're going to have super grace blessings. You're going to have uh, blessings that are going to overflow to others. Blessings by association. You're going to have all these great things. And then he's talking to mature believers now. He says, for all these mature who are being led in the process of receiving this information from learning doctrine by the Spirit of God, these are the adult ones of God. These are the adult sons from God. If I had time, which we don't, I'm fixing to, to end. But if I did, I'd go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and you'll see where Paul, the same writer to the Romans, are calling the Corinthians a bunch of babies. He's saying here you have the potential to be adult sons. That's if you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, if you're living by the Spirit. But if you're not, you're going to be like the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and he says, you bunch of babies. Y'all are napios. What napios says? Snot-nosed little kid that doesn't know squat and thinks they know everything. Okay, here's it. This is my last deal. Evidently, believers are able to live according to the flesh under the influence of their old sin nature to the point where they are in danger of the most severe divine discipline, which can be a premature physical death. That's what James was warning of. Remember? We just came out of James. There would be no such thing as the sin unto death if all true believers automatically persevered in good works, would there? Huh? We'll draw a line there. We haven't got to the good part yet. I think all this is good. I told you know what I told Carrie today. She wasn't feeling too well, and I'm bouncing off the wall. I just, oh man, you know, I'm just, I'm like this. Well, what's the matter? I said, I just love to get in the Word and be able to refute all this crap. I mean, all this false doctrine, all this non-grace thinking. Can y'all see it? Can you see it in every one of these verses? All I'm doing is ask the question, how can you persevere and have all these warnings? Why do we need exhortation not to get into this? If it's automatic, we're going to do it anyway. And when people come around and say, oh, well, you know, <laughs> you got divorced, you're going to hell. All right, well, Really? Instead of you know, trying to preach to them, you know what I'm going to say? Where'd you get that idea? Questions are very powerful. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time that we can fellowship in your word, that we can grow so that we can be prepared, so that we can have the tenacity to hang in there with those who are believing the lie those who are in darkness, those who have imposed upon themselves this perseverance that Your Word never ascribes to eternal salvation. 
Everybody <laughs> seems to not grasp the idea that the perseverance comes afterwards. We pray that you will help us to so inculcate this into our souls to where we will not hesitate. We will boldly and dogmatically explain and expound your grace and what it takes to be saved to anyone that will listen and that you will give us opportunity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.